let's pray before we hop into the message today. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Uh, Jesus, I pray that you would use today as an opportunity to speak truth to those who need to hear truth, to, uh, to, to, to drive inside of us a new passion for your word, a new hunger for your presence, for knowing you better. And I, Lord, I pray that you would make, uh, make today's message clear and it would relate to hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. An elderly woman had just returned to her home from an evening worship service and was startled to find an intruder in her house. Catching the man in the act of burglarizing her home, she yelled, Stop! Acts 2.38, which says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. And as the burglar stopped dead in his tracks, the woman calmly called to the police and explained what she had done. Shortly, several, several officers arrived and took the man into custody. As he was placing the handcuffs on the burglar, one of the officers asked, Why did you just stand there? All the lady did was mention a scripture verse. Scripture, replied the burglar. She said she had an axe in 238. <laughs> we got somebody who wants to preach the message today. I think we got a, a future pastor over there. He's comfortable. I got another one for you. John was a hopeless drunk. Sorry for anybody in the room named John. That's the name of the guy. John was a hopeless drunk and went to church to see the pastor. The pastor told him to come to church the next Sunday and he would baptize him and John would be a new man. The next Sunday, the pastor dipped him in the water three times. After the third dip, the pastor said, you are now baptized. You are a new creation. The old one is gone. No more drinking of alcohol for you. Your new name is Gomez. Gomez went back home and headed straight for the fridge. He took out a beer dipped it in the water three times and said, you are now a new creation. The old one is gone. Your new name is Green Tea. <laughs> yes. You know, I can count on one hand uh, how many church Sundays I've missed. I grew up going to church. I grew up sitting in the first two rows. And I, I rarely missed a Sunday. And watching people getting baptized... And taking communion together as a church was just something that the church did. We always did it. And when I was 10 years old, I felt the desire to be water baptized. I went to my parents and I, I said, Mom, I feel like uh, God is, is, is wanting me to be baptized. And so when I was 10 years old, I was baptized at Northwest Foursquare Church. My dad baptized me. And we took these classes beforehand. And we were, uh, we were supposed to memorize a big chunk of John chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and uh, I, I just remember uh, feeling called to it. But I just always thought that's what the church did. And I never stopped to consider how odd these practices seem for someone who is new to church and who's new to the Bible I mean, when you step into a church and they're taking communion and the pastor is talking about drinking the blood of Jesus and eating his body, I mean, is that really what communion is about? Is baptism really about death and resurrection? I mean, when viewed from the outside looking in, these practices almost seem borderline cult-like from the outside looking in. But when we read the Bible, we understand that these practices uh, are things that God himself has commanded the church to regularly observe. And there is a purpose. There is a meaning behind these, these practices of baptism and communion. Why are we to regularly do these things? You know, Western culture uh, here in America, we tend to avoid things that seem uh, ritualistic or repetitive, right? Oftentimes, uh, after you read a book, you never come back to that book. I've read it. I've been there, done that. Uh, when you watch a, a lot of people watch a movie, they don't watch it a second time. But but what we are a culture uh, of that, we, that likes to avoid rituals. We like to avoid repetition. And for many people, communion is no more than an intellectual reflection, and baptism is no more than maybe an opportunity to join the club. Everybody else is doing it pastor says I should do it. Let's join the club. But it's so much more than that. It's so much more than that. Today we're going to talk about the meaning and significance of water baptism. And we're going to throw in some things about communion too. I'm really going to talk about sacraments 
in general, but I'm going to focus a little bit more on water baptism towards the end of my message. And I hope to accomplish two things today. I really want to do two things. The first thing I want to do is I want to give those who have already been baptized a renewed sense of joy and a commitment, a recommitment to their baptism, a recommitment to what they did long ago, or maybe it was recent when you were water baptized. And the second thing I want to do is I want to stir a desire for baptism in those who have not been baptized. And for those of us who have not been baptized to consider what I'm talking about today and consider being water baptized. So these things, water baptism and, and communion, they're referred to in the church oftentimes as sacraments. Over time, the church has come to refer to these things as sacraments. The Catholic Church recognizes seven sacraments. If you grew up in the Catholic Church, you're familiar with these sacraments. And evangelicals, like our church, we would approve of the majority of them. But the two that we regularly observe are baptism and communion, or the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist. The word sacrament is not found in the Bible. We're going to define it a little bit today, but, but if you got out your concordance, you won't find the word sacrament in the Bible. The New Testament often refers to baptism and the Lord's Supper, but never uses the word sacrament. The term sacrament comes from the Latin word sacramentum, which originally was a military term which described an oath of allegiance uh, or obedience that a soldier pledged to his commander. And the term sacrament or sacramentum was used in the Vulgate, which is the, the Latin translation of the Bible. And it was used to translate the Greek word mysterion or mystery. That's what the word means. So we get the word sacramentum because the Vulgate used that word to translate the word mystery. And what, as, as we talk about this today, you're going to discover that these two things, they truly are a mystery. That... that I'm going to do my best to define it. I'm going to do my best to talk about the why we do it, the, the what it is, the how we do it. But, but in reality, there is so much more in the invisible world that we cannot see. And as believers, there is a level of mystery that we are called to have in our life. There's a level of trust, a level of faith that we are called to walk in. And so this is where we get the word sacrament is from this translation of the word mystery and one of the most widely used definitions of the term sacrament is this and we're going to use this for today but it's a visible form of invisible grace a visible form of invisible grace we serve the god who created both the visible and the invisible and he uses both in conjunction with each other he uses the things in the visible world and the things in the invisible world in conjunction with each other. John Calvin uh, gave us this definition. It says this, a sacrament is an outward sign by which the Lord seals to our consciences the promise of his goodwill towards us in order to sustain the weakness of our faith. And we, in turn, attest our, our piety toward him in the presence of the Lord and of his angels and before men. So it is a visible form, or we like to say sometimes in church that it is an outward sign of an inward work. That it is a visible display of something that is happening in the spiritual, something that is happening in the unseen. And following the patterns in the Bible and the, tr the traditions of the first church in Acts, we can describe sacraments in two fundamental parts. And so these are the what of baptism and communion. I'm going to talk about the what, I'm going to talk about the how, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the why. We all know who, who the who is, right? It's Jesus. That's the answer for every every Sunday school question. If you don't know the answer, just say Jesus. You're 90% going to get it right. So we're going to discuss the what of baptism and communion. What is baptism and communion? What, what are the sacraments? Fundamentally, Here's the first thing. I got two things. Fundamentally, number one, they are a sign and a symbol. A sign and a symbol. A sign points to something greater. For instance, I used to love watching the Oscars. I don't like to watch the Oscars as much anymore. It's become really political. But I used to love watching the Oscars. And uh, the Oscar trophy, right, the, the, these actors, uh, when they receive 
this, they're, they're presented with this trophy. This trophy represents a greater achievement than the trophy itself, doesn't it? It represents being the best actor, the best supporting actor, the best director. But it's just a sign. It is, it is a sign that points to a greater thing that is happening. A symbol is an even greater sign because it joins two things together. Let me give you a great example that we see in the Bible. Marriage. Marriage is a symbol, which marriage happens to be another sacrament in the Catholic Church. But according to Ephesians 5, marriage is a symbol of Jesus' relationship with humanity. When you see a man and a woman joined together, you're supposed to be witnessing the form of a form of the great marriage between Jesus, the bridegroom, and the bride, which is his church. It says in Ephesians 5, for husbands to love your wives, to give your life up for them as Christ died for the church, as he gave his life up for the church, to love your wives unconditionally. And wives are supposed to submit to their husband. We don't like that word submit here in our culture, but it means to, uh, it is an outpouring it is an outpouring that comes out of when, when, when somebody is loved in such a way that is unconditional, like Jesus loves it. There is a submission that takes place. And so this, when we see a man and a woman joined together in marriage, it is a symbol of the great marriage that is happening between Jesus and his bride, the church. If we get even more uh, into physical symbols, uh, there's the exchanging of wedding rings, which the, the wedding ring is uh, the image of a golden circle is meant to represent a pure and unending commitment to one another. Some of you have tattoos on your fingers or some of you have uh, you don't have gold like me. I don't have gold. But 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 overall, the ring is supposed to symbolize this unending commitment to one another, a pure, unblemished love for one another. And there's a difference, though, between these two symbols, between marriage and the exchanging of rings. One has been created and blessed by God, and the other was man-made. Not every culture has an exchanging of wedding rings. But you get the point, right? That a symbol points to something that is greater. It joins two things together, two ideas together. The second fundamental part, or the second what, of a sacrament of communion and baptism is it is a rite and a ritual. It is a rite and a ritual. Now, these words, they have negative connotations in Western culture, as I mentioned before, because we have little value for repetition and specific processes, with the exception of maybe holiday traditions, right? We all like to make a turkey on Thanksgiving. Some of us like to uh, swap or we give our whole family matching pajamas on Christmas Eve. Anybody have that tradition? Right? We watch the same Christmas movies, listen to the same songs. We have specific rites and rituals when it comes to the holiday season. But it, for the most part, we tend to avoid rites and rituals. But in order to appreciate the, the value of rites and rituals, we have to change our worldview. And we've got to look through the lens of ancient Jewish culture. They would have, uh, they had so many rites and rituals. They have so many traditions and, and holidays that they celebrate. One of them, I'm going to, here's a list of a few of them. There's a, a bar mitzvah, which is a religious initiation into manhood when a boy is 13 years old. Did you know Jesus had a bar mitzvah? It is assumed he, Jesus was a Jewish man, and it is assumed that he had a bar mitzvah. The Jews also practiced Shabbat or Sabbath which was weekly rest, and it was initiated with lighting candles and reciting a blessing. And it included reading specific passages from Scripture, particularly Genesis and the creation of the world and Exodus when the people were led out of Egypt. Jesus observed Shabbat weekly. It was a rite. It was a ritual. It was something that they did weekly. We, they have uh, Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year that begins with 10 days of prayer and repentance. And uh, it would include dipping apples in honey to symbolize a sweet New Year. They had Purim, celebrating salvation from the annihilation at the hands of the Persians. And they read the book of Esther and they dress in costumes. They celebrate during Purim. There was Passover, which is an eight-day festival commemorating the exodus from Egypt. And they would rid their homes of unleavened bread. They would drink from four cups of wine. 
Did you know that when Jesus sat with his disciples in, 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 the, uh, in the room and the, at the Last Supper, at the Lord's Supper, uh, when, when he lifted up the glass of wine and said, this is my blood that is about to be shed for you, that he, they were drinking from the four cups of wine. And a lot of scholars believe that this was the third cup that he was raising up. But the cups are, it's the cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, the cup of redemption, which is what a lot of people believe Jesus was drinking from when he shared it with his disciples. And the fourth one is the cup of praise. But these were rituals. These were things that that the that Jewish culture that they would observe every year. And most notably, here's the last one, Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, where the high priest, he entered the Holy of Holies, and he sprinkled blood seven times upon the Ark of the Covenant. These are just a few of uh, of the holidays and traditions that, that the Jews would practice. But ancient Jewish, Jewish culture, Jesus included, was steeped in rites and rituals and signs and symbols. And these practices carried a weight that many traditions in the West have lost. I want you to imagine something. It's a little graphic, but I want you to imagine something for me. Imagine the practice of sacrificial atonement where a person leads an innocent lamb to be slaughtered for their sin. So you have this newborn lamb who's never done anything wrong, so cute and fluffy. A lot of us like animals, right? And you're leading this lamb who's never done anything wrong. You're leading him to the priest, and you go to the priest, and you've sinned. You've made a mistake, and your, your sin needs to be atoned for according to the law of Moses. So you hand your lamb over to the priest, and you look in this little lamb's eyes, as the priest lays his hand on its head and slits its throat right in front of you. Come on, pastor. That's too graphic. Stop it. Imagine this for a moment. Imagine the weight of guilt that you feel, for that it's your sin that has led this lamb to this moment. That he's taking the weight of your sin. Imagine the weight of this moment. You can smell the blood. You can see it. You can... You can hear the noises around you. And then you also experience this relief that comes knowing that you are now atoned for. You have been made right with God because of the sacrifice of this lamb. There's a weight to these rituals. There's a weight to these signs and these symbols. Animal sacrifice was looking forward to the cross. When Jesus would be our sacrificial lamb and he would take away the sins of the world forever. Animal sacrifice was a foreshadowing, was a looking forward to the cross, knowing that something has to change. There has got to be a better way. There's got to be a payment for once and for all. And it was looking forward to the cross. And communion in the New Testament, communion is the New Testament counterpart to animal sacrifice because it's looking back to the cross. It's looking Back to the sacrifice of Jesus, and it's in the act of communion that we feel the weight of our sin being the reason that Jesus died. But also, it's in this act of communion that we feel the relief knowing that we have been made right with God. That Jesus has taken away my sin. I no longer have to do these animal sacrifices, these things, but, but we have communion to remind us of the gravity of this moment. Of this sacrifice that Jesus made. In the same way, water baptism is the New Testament counterpart to circumcision. Now, this is the moment where all the guys start to cringe in the room. But in the Old Testament, when somebody, when a Jew was to join the family of God, what God's command to Abraham was that he was to circumcise himself and circumcise his family. And it was this act of, uh, it was this, it was a, a very intense moment where you uh, said yes to being part of God's family. You said yes to being part of the chosen people of God. And in the same way, water baptism is the New Testament counterpart to circumcision. It's the moment where we say yes to being part of the people of God, to being part of God's children, God's family. Colossians 2, 11 through 12 says this, in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. 
Now notice, notice in all of these holidays and all of these rites and rituals, notice all the physical elements in these practices. We see candles and bread and wine and water and blood. See, God loves to use his creation to connect us with himself and his unseen promises. In fact, uh, when God created the Garden of Eden, it was a sacramental place. It was a place where uh, when we read the first description of man, it's that of uh, mankind holds the, the role of a priest in the garden. Right? The Garden of Eden, in a sense, is, a, is this holy temple. It's a place where God's presence can freely roam because it doesn't have any sin. It is a holy place. And man is established in the garden to minister to God and to take care of the temple, to take care of creation. Man's first role was that of a priest. A priest is one who ministers to God and takes care of the temple and ministers to the, the people around him. God loves to use his physical creation to connect us with himself. I love this quote by Leonard J. Vanderzee. This is a, quite the name. But he says this. This is a beautiful quote. To express his covenant relationship with his people, God is always saying, watch this, touch that, feel this, taste that. Created things are God's most common means of expression. Because the world was created by God, it is a sacramental place. God can use anything to communicate his word and promise or to reveal himself as in Moses' burning bush. So in the garden, we have this picture of God. God uses two trees to physically communicate the realities of life and death. To communicate the ideas of obedience and disobedience and good and evil. He uses physical things, physical creation to communicate invisible realities. After the flood, God used a rainbow to convey a blessing and a promise for Noah that he would never flood the earth again. And so he gives him a physical sign, a part of creation, a rainbow to show him this promise, this blessing. The manna from heaven that was given to the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert it was given to them to physically sustain them, but also to communicate that God was a provider and that and God was all that the people needed. A physical, a visible form of an invisible grace. And when we participate in communion and baptism, we're allowing God to use his creation of water and wine and bread to bring us into powerful spiritual realities. This is what we have to understand this is the, probably the, the most important thing to understand about the sacraments is that Jesus himself was the quintessential sacrament. He was the ultimate sacrament. What do you mean? He was a, a sign and a symbol? Yes, Jesus was a symbol for something greater. The invisible God made himself visible when Jesus was born and his life symbolized the heart of God to be among his children and God's desire to combine our spirits with the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' death symbolized the final payment and was the end of sin forever. Jesus, what happened to Jesus happens for us. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is important. This is an important truth. What happened to Jesus happens for us. When Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit ascended upon him, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus, and it descends upon us as well. God says, this is my beloved son, and God says that about you as well. When you receive him, he says, you are my son, you are my daughter, you become children of God. What happened to Adam in the beginning, where Adam sinned, it had brought sin into the rest of the world, right? But Jesus was the second Adam, and he freed us from sin. What happened to Jesus happens for us, and it's through baptism and communion. That we share in Christ's death and his resurrection. We share the receiving of the Holy Spirit. We share being called beloved son or beloved daughter. So that is the what. It is a sign and a symbol. It's also a rite and a ritual. So the next question is, well, what makes it a sacrament? How do sacraments work? How does baptism work? How does communion work? No doubt 
Uh, no doubt every one of us has taken a bath before. Yeah? Hopefully. No doubt we've all been in a pool before. We've all been immersed in a pool before, right? No doubt we've all maybe had a glass of wine. If you don't drink wine, you've had some grape juice and a cracker before, right? You've, you've done those things outside of church. So what makes a sacrament special? How does it work? What's the difference between jumping into a pool and being baptized here at church or being baptized somewhere else? Here's what I want us to know this morning. Is it becomes a sacrament when, as an act of the Holy Spirit, physical actions and elements are combined with the word of God and received in faith. That's what makes it a sacrament. Now, there's four elements to this. There's four things. This is more of a teaching today, yeah? This is more of a teaching. I felt like this was helpful because I wanted I want us to fully understand what we are doing when we are when we are baptized and what we are doing when we take communion together. Are you okay? Are you tracking with me? Yes. All right, there's four elements to this statement. The first one is we are united with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are united with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Communion and baptism have no meaning for the person who has not yet received Jesus and been given the Holy Spirit. By the way, we believe that at the moment of conversion, when you ask Jesus, when you ask Jesus to come into your life, the old you is gone, and you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are given the nature and the Spirit of God. It changes you. It transforms you. So it's at the moment of salvation. When you say yes to Jesus and you make him your Lord and Savior, you receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what connects us with Jesus because The same spirit has filled both you and Jesus. It connects the two of us together. So we are united with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. The second thing is this. God imparts his grace through physical elements and actions. Have you ever thought about this? When when Eve took a bite of the fruit in Genesis 3, when Eve took a bite of the fruit, it wasn't the fruit itself that brought about sin. It was used as a vehicle to bring disobedience to God. And in the same way, God uses physical elements to impart blessing and grace for us today. He uses physical things in his creation to impart blessing to us today. And they are in the form of the sacraments, communion and baptism. These elements are significant. This is the third thing. These elements are significant when they are joined with God's word. When they're joined with God's word. The Bible often expresses the importance of declaring things with your mouth. And sacraments involve our senses, all of our senses, with God's word. Communion makes the word tasty. Communion makes the word of God tasty. Baptism allows us to feel the cleansing water of the word, the drive into the chaotic waters where there's no air and the relief that comes when we take our first breath with our new lungs. God is involving all of our senses into experiencing his word, into experiencing these truths about who he is. And the last thing is this, is our body participates with our faith and it informs our faith. It informs our faith. Faith participates in baptism in the same way that faith participates in your salvation. When you were saved, you believed. You believed that by declaring these words, that Jesus is Lord and inviting him into your heart, repenting of your sin, inviting Jesus into your life to cleanse your heart, you believed by faith that you were saved. That Jesus has made you new. You are free from condemnation. You are free from shame. You, you received it by faith. And in the same way, when we are baptized, we believe that we are unified with God. That we are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. It is a mystery. It's truly a mystery. Here's the thing. Baptism is one of those moments in our life when our faith is weak. We can remember our baptism and build our faith by reminding ourselves of who we are and what Christ has done. 
we remind ourselves of what Jesus has done in our life. When we reflect upon our baptism, we can say, I've been baptized with Christ. That is no longer me anymore. I am free from sin. God has delivered me. I don't have to live in shame. I don't have to live in condemnation. I am free because I've been baptized with Christ. That is the how. How of baptism and communion. How it works. Now we're going to talk about the why. Why why do we practice baptism? Again, let me remind us that to truly understand the significance of baptism, we have to shift our worldview by looking at the roots of baptism in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You, you okay? You still tracking with me? Okay. Let's look at some foreshadows of baptism in the Old Testament. The Old Testament uh, foreshadows water baptism with the imagery of water, where we see water in the Old Testament. Water is used in many laws, number one, for cleansing uh, a spiritually unclean person. This is what it says in Numbers 19, 11 through 12. It says, whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. They must purify themselves with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. Then they will be clean. But if they do not purify themselves on the third and seventh days, they will not be clean. So water is seen as this purifying action, this purifying work that cleanses us of impurity, that cleanses us of sin. But water in the Old Testament is also depicted as it represents death and chaos. Water represents death and and chaos in the Old Testament. We see the first glimpse of this in Genesis 1, verse 2, the very beginning of the Bible. It says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It says the earth was formless and void, and that word means chaos, that it was just, it was a jumbled mess of chaos, and the Spirit of God was hovering over these chaotic waters. Then God speaks, and out of this chaos is brought life. Out of this chaos is brought the creation, and God begins to organize the chaos. He begins to create the sun, the moon, the stars, the sea, the dry land. He begins to separate and organize the chaos. Then we see in Genesis 6, the flood. The flood waters bring death to the world, but Noah is saved out of the flood waters, out of these waters of death. Exodus I talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago, but Moses is saved in a little ark. The only two places where the word for ark is in the, in the Bible is when it describes the ark in Genesis 6, when Noah hops on the, the ark. And then in Exodus, when his mother put, uh, creates a, a wicker basket, a, a weaved basket for Moses, that word is also ark. And so Moses is placed on this little ark, and he floats down the Nile. He is saved from the waters of death, while all the other children in Egypt under two are being thrown into the Nile. But Moses is saved through the waters. And then again in Exodus, we see Israel saved through the Red Sea. They walk on dry land. As God saves them from certain death, he, they walk through the waters of chaos, the waters of of death. And then we just concluded our Jonah series. Jonah is another example of this, where Jonah escapes death by being carried in the belly of the fish and he's saved from the sea. He's spat out onto dry land. He's carried through the waters of death and is raised to life on the new on the other side. All of these foreshadow what we see in the New Testament about baptism. Let's move to the, the New Testament. The New Testament authors, they don't give us clear instructions for the proper way to baptize, right? And they, they never give us a clear teaching about baptism. They assume that people will take into consideration the roots of baptism found in the Old Testament. And then they make references to what baptism is all about. They, they drop hints and they make references to what is happening when we are being baptized. So I think the best place to start in the New Testament is to begin with Jesus' baptism. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3, verse 13 through 17. This is the baptism of Jesus. By the way, this is where Jesus begins his earthly ministry. So immediately after, after he's baptized, he begins his earthly ministry. It says this, Matthew three thirteen. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. 
But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Come on, that would be all of our response, right? What do you, what? Verse 15, Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus begins his earthly ministry with water baptism. And he ends his earthly ministry with a command for others to go and baptize people. For his followers to go and baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is significant. That Jesus would begin his ministry with baptism. He would end it with a command for his followers to go and baptize others. And if it wasn't enough that Jesus himself was baptized and he commands his followers to baptize others, we also see that the apostles in the New Testament baptized people in conjunction with their conversion. We, when you read the, the Gospels, when you read the book of Acts, uh, salvation, uh, in the book of Acts, salvation and water baptism are almost inseparable. They are mostly inseparable. You see somebody receiving Jesus and immediately becoming baptized. So I want to leave you with three things this morning about the why of baptism and what is happening when we are baptized, why we are water baptized. And if you are in this room and you haven't been water baptized, consider these three things, okay? Number one, why is because baptism unites us to Christ's death and resurrection. And I know we've already talked a little bit about it, but I want to, this is, this is, this is the key thing about baptism. It unites us to Christ's death and resurrection. This is what Romans 6, 3 through 4 says. It says, or, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him. Through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Paul in this in this portion of scripture is answering a moral question. He begins with in, in the book of Romans is is a one huge um, it's a very smart argument. It's a scholarly argument, and so he's following this train of thought. And he talks about how, he, uh, in earlier chapters, he talks about how uh, we were slaves to the law, that we were obligated to, to follow the, the letter of the law, but now we have been set free from the law. We no longer have an obligation to the law, but now we are saved by grace and saved through faith. And so he's, the question that he's answering right here is because we have grace and because we have been set free from the obligation of following the law, does that mean that we should be able to sin all we want? But he answers this question not by saying, he, he of course says no. No, you can't sin all you want, but why? He doesn't say because you've been saved. He doesn't say because you believe. He doesn't say because you were born again. He doesn't even say because you have the Holy Spirit. What does he say? He says because you were baptized into Jesus' death. You were baptized into Jesus' death. What does this mean? Paul describes water baptism as a rite which fundamentally changes how you act and how you think of yourself. And this becomes the most central aspect of your identity. Being buried with Christ, being resurrected with Christ, this becomes the most central aspect of who you are. What does it mean to be baptized into Christ's death? It means this. You're dead. Church, the old you is gone. And if dying wasn't enough, he says you were buried with him. And that's, that's the nail on the coffin. That's the, final, that's the final push to the grave. You are gone. 
The old you is gone. You in the past, the one who did those things, who said those things, who had those uh, desires and those cravings. Yes, we still struggle with sin, but that is not who you are. You are dead. When Paul writes to the churches in the New Testament, when he, when he writes to Corinth, to the church in Corinth, when he writes in Colossians and Ephesians and Galatians, what does he say? To the saints in Ephesus. He doesn't say to the sinners in Ephesus. We like to say, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, you're not. You were baptized into Christ's death. You are dead. That old you is gone. It's no longer you. You are no longer a sinner. Yes, you were a sinner saved by grace, but now you are a saint. All things have been made new. You have a new identity. And this is who you are. This is the rock on which you stand. Jesus says, when you start to doubt, when you start to wonder if I'm saved, if I, man, I still feel these tendencies, these urges for sin, if I still wonder, Jesus says, remember, you've been baptized with me. You are dead. You died. And when you came out of that water, when you said yes, you were raised to life. Is baptism, am I talking about baptism being the thing that saves you? No. It is a sign. It is an outward, an outward look at something that is happening inwardly. That something, something has already happened. Jesus says, you're dead. You've been given a new identity. This is who you are. This is the central, the central thing about baptism. The second thing about baptism And we see this in scripture is baptism involves us into the family of God. It involves us in the church. It is a rite of passage into the church. Let me give you an example. Galatians 3, 26 to 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ Uh, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul is clearing up an issue happening in the church. There are still uh, some Jews in the church that aren't accepting the Gentiles coming in. There are Gentiles, there are people who are not Jews that aren't Abraham's physical seed. And they're believing in Jesus and they're coming into the church. And the Jews in the church are thinking, whoa, 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 what are they doing? They don't belong to Abraham. They're not Abraham's seed. And Paul is saying, listen, if you, we all have been baptized into Christ. We are all part of one family now. We are all part of one community. Not only do you have a new personal identity, you have a new social identity when you are baptized. You belong to a community that sets aside all human divisions and hierarchies, and it places everyone on equal footing under the Lord Jesus. Acts 2, 41 says this. This is after Peter Peter preaches the first gospel message. And by the way, next week we're starting a new series called Good News. And this message that Peter preaches is the foundation of the series. It is the first gospel message after jesus is raised from the dead and peter uh concisely succinctly describes what the gospel is all about and it says upon hearing what peter said three thousand this is what it says those who accepted his message were baptized and about three thousand were added to their number that day added to what they were added to the community of believers to the family of god Baptism is seen in this passage as this rite. It's this rite of passage into the community of God. And the third thing, I'm going to ask Mary to come up. And we're going to take communion together in just a moment. This is the last thing. Baptism represents the washing away of our sins. It represents the washing away of our sins. When Paul, uh, he's recounting to some people in Acts 22, he's recounting the moment of his baptism by Ananias. He's describing how he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And when he met Ananias 
And this is what uh, was told to Paul when Ananias, when Paul receives his sight, Ananias says to Paul in Acts twenty two sixteen, 16, he says, and now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. See, baptism itself isn't what washes away our sin or saves us. It's a sign that points to the moment that our sins were washed away when Jesus died. Baptism links us to the blood of Jesus. It creates in us a new identity. The old us is dead. The new you is here. Jesus has given you a new identity, a new nature. He's filled you with his Holy Spirit. Baptism involves us into the church, the family of God. And baptism represents the washing away of our sin. There's a few other whys to baptism, and maybe we'll have time to get into those later. But those are the the fundamental aspects of it. And here's what I'm charging you with, church, is that in in the next month, in the month of April, we're going to have a water baptism Sunday. And I want to invite you, if you have never been water baptized before, to grab one of the connect cards on your way out or at the connection table in the lobby and on the back of it it says i want to be water baptized just check that box and put your name and your email and i'll reach out to you and uh i'll invite you you'll you'll know everything you need to know about it as as we approach the date but baptism sunday is one of my favorite sundays because it's a moment for all of us to celebrate publicly what Jesus did in somebody's life. I always get emotional on those days because it's truly an outward expression of what God has done in the hearts of people and it blesses it blesses the church. It builds our faith to know that God is moving. He is changing lives. Look at this person that he has changed. It doesn't matter if you've been following Jesus for years and years and years. If you haven't been water baptized, come on, this next month is your month. This next Baptism Sunday is your Baptism Sunday. So please grab a Connect card and check that box on your way out. This is how I want to end our day together. Everybody have your communion. In fact, I need somebody to hand me one of those communion things. I don't have one. I had everybody. Yes. Almost. (laughs) Thank you, Kurt. You can go ahead and pull out the, the cracker. symbol Isaiah 53 says that he was bruised for our transgressions that the punishment on Jesus' body brought us freedom by his stripes we are healed and you know Jesus wants you to have a whole life he doesn't want to just fix your wants to give you a new mind. Romans 12 says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. He wants to give you a new mind. He wants you to he wants to give you a new heart, a new mind. He wants you your emotional life to be healthy. He wants your relational life to be healthy. Jesus died so that you can have life abundantly. Did he say I want to give you an easy life? struggled. You don't know how many times I've, I've asked for forgiveness and I've dove right back into it. You just don't 
God is going to forgive me anymore. Come on, stop that. That is a lie. Because if I say that, you're saying, Jesus' blood was good enough for everybody else, but it wasn't good enough for me. It was powerful to cleanse the world of its sin, but when it comes to my sin, Jesus has had enough. My sin is too powerful. you.